Welcome to Conversation 360 Podcast and this episode in our series of Asia and the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. We showcase people whose life, work, and experience shed light on what's taking place in and between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, and you'll hear from people with fascinating things to say about other parts of Asia as well. In this episode, you'll hear from Ernest Parker Greer, a Tennessee native who has worked globally from Asia since 1995 while living in Sydney, Tokyo, Hong Kong, and Thailand. He's led companies in Europe and North America and 15 countries in the Asia-Pacific region. For years, he was a senior executive for Steelcase, Inc., most recently as president Asia-Pacific. Ernie holds over 40 patents and lectures at universities and symposiums around the world. And he founded G+, a Hong Kong-based consultancy which employs user-focused design methodologies to help clients develop innovation and globalization strategies. This conversation took place while Ernie was in Hong Kong and I was in New York. He shares his observations on China's prospects in this age of globalizations, including the view that the Chinese are incredible entrepreneurs but still have a ways to go to be truly innovative. And I think that the Chinese government is um, investing mightily to try to, you know, to make that jump from, you know, the sort of manufacturing economy to the innovation economy and it's that's the most difficult transition for a a national economy to make and i don't think they're making it ernie cites wechat a lot of people that i know think that technically it's the best there is Mm -hmm. and you know it's got like 800 million users now nobody knows how many of those are are real and how many of them are you know surrogates for whoever Mm -hmm. but um you know, only 160 million of those are outside of China. So what people say is, yeah, everybody says it's better. But what people tell me is that the innovation that's there is, is linking ideas from Western platforms. When we talk about the challenges to Beijing's plans for sustaining China's remarkable success story, Ernie says it's all about the unstoppable flow of information among individuals. You know, so you have 800 million users, you have a great firewall, and then you have all this information that people are disseminating that's impossible to control. And by the way, that information is increasing geometrically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how do you control it mm-hmm. in the future? And, and how do you keep all those special interest groups happy and, and feeling good about their prosperity and your lifestyle and how things are changing. The governmental effort to control the flow of information results in fake news, a topic of global importance. Ernie interestingly references President Trump here. You get Trump saying, you know, there were 2 million people there, and New York Times says there's 900,000 people there. Oh, at, you the, know, you have all, at the inauguration. I have all yeah. this... Yeah, yeah. So you have all that stuff going on, too. And it's just, it's even more so um, in China. We cover many topics in this episode. Why pricing and currency practices are so important to China's growth. Why Trump is regarded as a media star by many Asians. Why the fraught relationship between Hong Kong and mainland China is sad. 
how young entrepreneurs need to relate to traditional Chinese business leaders, even though some of them grew up in the Cultural Revolution and are not digitally literate, and much more. So join us. Welcome to Conversations 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series, Ernie. Thank you. So, Ernie, when we talk about conversations taking place between Asia and the West, what does that mean to you? What does that bring up? Globalization. Ah, okay. So explain what that means. Well, globalization is the uh, flow uh, of information, goods, and services between different parts of the world in order to uh, achieve maximum efficiency. So that sounds pretty that sounds pretty neat and clean. Is that really how it works? I mean, between Asia and the West are um are we having adequate and efficient conversations? It's never adequate and efficient, but you know, it has to be better than alternatives or it wouldn't exist. <laughs> well, that's true. So, but you've been there and you've been between these several parts of the world for, for many years now. So how has that, and, and we're not talking so much politically, I think, as through business and individuals, how, how has that dialogue shifted since during the last decade, say? Well, I think um, the last decade, you know, is um, you have to go back to a time. So we'd be thinking about 2006, which was, you know, the introduction of the uh, first iPhone, I think. So, you know, let's say that that was sort of the advent of the smartphone. So if you looked at the number of people that have access through the Internet, particularly in China, I think it's, I don't know, 800 million people now or something. Uh And most of most of those people are. um, use mobile devices in one way or another. So what happens is that most of those people 10 years ago weren't on the Internet because the, the quality of transmission is not available to what it is now. So when you talk specifically about China and the United States or broadening that to uh, Asia and the United States, um, you know, I think that that's probably the, the biggest difference is the expansion of, of information available to people. Well, having said that, how accurate, given all this uh, new, over the last decade, new uh, interchange uh, interaction that's taking place, how accurate is the Chinese understanding of the West? Not very accurate at all. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I think to go back a bit, I think you have to say, okay, in saying, um, you have to, you have to question the effectiveness of talking about nations. And I think you could say the same thing about the United States, because, you know, um, if we're talking about far Western rural China, that's one thing. If we're talking about Shanghai, Beijing, you know, the tier one increasingly Tier two and tier tier three cities. That's a different deal. So let's assume, um, let's assume we are talking about the tier one, tier two, tier three cities in China. Um, 
how how about them? How accurate is their understanding of the West? Well, I think let's say that there there is an elite group of people that you know that travel a great deal that that know it very well and um, are responsible for growth of a lot of of uh, business between the two countries um, and different types of interchanges. But beyond that, I think um, um, there's a big gap into the reality of what different parts of America is and what the perception of, of it is from a tier one city from Shanghai or Beijing or something. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's Hollywood and rap music. So turn it turn it the other way around. How about the Western understanding of China? How accurate is that? I think in general, um, it may be less accurate than the Chinese understanding of the United States. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because think about how many people and what percentage of our population has you know spent much time at all in China. I can tell you that in the past 10 years, it's a lot more than it was previously. And that's, you know, as a result of globalization. You know, we think about people our age and, you know, and going to China. I mean, think about Nixon in 1971, you know, um, and the expansion since then. Now, you know, people that work for big companies are... um, it's not a big deal to go to China on a business trip. Mm-hmm. So when you think, though, of people who are, let's say, 20 years old in both China and in the U.S., my sense is that there's a big appetite in China to know more about, and maybe the Hollywood version, but they, there were more people who knew about what was happening in the U.S. with Trump than I think there would be in the U.S. knowing about what was happening with the um, politics in China. Oh, I think that's absolutely um, true and clear. I think that, uh, um, you know, one of the things that uh, America is still a global leader in is the entertainment industry. And, you know... Trump's really popular just from The Apprentice. Okay, (laughs) so, Uh you know, so that's in many ways, you know, when you really think about um, how information spreads and flows. um, Absolutely. That's one of the things that America does really well still. That's interesting. I I, I think that's an interesting take on this, and I hadn't even thought about that. Uh, hmm. Apprentice show. No, it's a big How, deal. Yeah, it's yeah, a big yeah. deal. So let's talk about what's and, happening. And also, so and and the thing yeah. that's important about that, Susan, is that you miss the nuance. Yep. Okay, so you know, again, so whatever you know, the braggadocio, the simple English that's un, that's easy to understand, that's popular in America, so it gets exported to. Um, Asian TV cable systems, you know, that means it's pretty cool in America. That's interesting. Yeah, you're so right. You're so right. So let's talk about what's on the mind of a lot of people who have an interest in China. 
and that is the downturn, the recent downturn in the Chinese economy. What's what's actually happening, and what's what kind of impact has that had? I don't know. You, uh, that I may not be very good at that, other than just sort of anecdotal discussion. Um, well, that might mean that's an answer, though, because that may mean that, in fact, it hasn't had that large an impact because you still you're you're a, you're involved in and a great observer of business. Um, so it sounds like this is not something that has made everybody say, oh, my gosh, things have truly changed. Well, I guess a couple of things, you know, and um, again, going back to what's understood and what isn't. Okay, mm-hmm. is this whole idea that you know that the reason that there are you know inefficiencies that you know that China has depressed its local currency in order to take away jobs in the United States? Um, I've never noticed that before. Okay, I mean, I, that's like a foreign policy discussion that's meant to help a position in you know nationally and and every country does that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay so that's one thing but what i have seen on the other side is that um companies who are already pricing to their international customers in u.s dollars want to raise prices Um, even though, you know, based on the currency exchange. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in some cases that's understandable. In other cases, it's, uh, you know, they're already protected because they're selling in U.S. dollars, which is increased in value anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a very interesting thing that I see on a regular basis. So can you give some examples of that? Um, well, if company A buys a product from a Chinese factory for a hundred U.S. dollars and that's priced in dollars, but the local company is, is buying an RMB, when their RMB prices go up, because the exchange rate is already factored in, in the U.S. dollar price, their selling price has gone up too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what happens is that um, there's really no need to, lay, to, to raise those prices because it, it's managed in the currency process. So it's simply opportunistic. Right. Absolutely. Which, you know, uh, another thing I'm not certain that uh, um, Americans understand about uh, Chinese is what incredible entrepreneurs they are and just how hard they work. Yeah. In fact, that brings up another question about when you say uh, what great entrepreneurs they are. So innovation in China, I remember just even three years ago when I began uh 
working with a number of people there, uh, mostly in Hong Kong, and, but with Westerners and Asians and talking about innovation. And people would say, well, you know, the West, the, this consensus was that China was still very, very good at copying and doing it well and manufacturing a lot of stuff. Now, suddenly we realize they no longer are going to be the, um, you know, the manufacturing facility to the world. And in fact, innovation is a very big deal. And we only have to look at companies like Alibaba and some others and realize um, that they're pretty darn good at innovation. You've observed this firsthand, right? So you've probably got some good examples of that. When you say they're great entrepreneurs, can you give us some examples? No, I really can't. <laughs> okay. I mean, I because I think if you really look, I, I and I think that the Chinese government is um, investing mightily to try to, you know, to make that jump from, you know, the sort of manufacturing economy to the innovation economy, and it's that's the most difficult transition for a. a national economy to make. And I don't think they're making it. I think by and large, if you look at what they do is that, that they take, you know, innovations and in products and in business models and, you know, those two as service, not services yet, but certainly business models and products. And they, um, um, they'll put those together in, in appropriate ways. Yeah, I mean, if you, I mean, if you look at um, uh, WeChat, for instance, I think a lot of people that I know think that technically, it's better. Um, it's the best there is, mm -hmm. and you know, it's got like eight hundred million users. Now, nobody knows how many of those are are real, and how many of them are, you know, surrogates for whoever. Mm -hmm. But. Um, you know, only 160 million of those are outside of China. So what people say is, yeah, everybody says it's better. But what people tell me is that the innovation that's there is, is linking ideas from Western platforms. Mm -hmm. And bravo to them for doing that. But it, it, going back to your comment about um, the Chinese government wanting to turn this uh, from a manufacturing giant to an innovative nation where will that increased innovation come from um it, it, will it be expats who bring their western thinking will it be the young who have been educated in the west and are returning there or is it going to be homegrown despite the fact that their educational system some think isn't um, necessarily the, the the greatest place from which to create independent thinking it, it, where is that innovation going to come from You know, it's interesting. We talked about how, how much things are changing right now and, you know, and the whole sort of nationalist populist changes in the United States, which are not, you know, unique right now to the United States. I mean, you know, Europe, there's right. a lot of that. I mean, we have Brexit, we have, you know, elections in France and Italy that, that we're thinking about. Mm -hmm. um, but I would have thought... I think that there's still a generation of what I'm going to call partnering kinds of innovation that, that need to happen in China before they're really, they're able to 
really start to, um, you know, create and, and, and design new business categories on their own. So when you say partnering kind of things, you mean partnering with, uh, with companies primarily from the West, or do you mean something else? I think that, um, you know, I'm a little worried about, uh, you know, we talked about globalization early on. I'm a little worried about uh, this nationalistic approach because I think it's a really good thing. But, you know, how do you separate the massive companies of the world that have R&D centers and, um, you know, in, in China and in India especially, you know, where all of a sudden the nationalism starts to evaporate. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then you uh, say, okay, who's going to really foster entrepreneurs and how are they going to do that? You know, Asian companies um, traditionally have not been very good at um, encouraging startups, any of them. Yeah, I think I think this is going to be fascinating, and and the uh, the I but I do see when I see people I've I've met a number of people who've been educated in the West and who have returned in this case to China, and have uh, have a totally you know American innovative way of looking at the world. Now whether they can turn that into businesses that are truly successful and can scale is uh, too early to tell, I guess, but. But certainly well, first, whether they can, and then second, whether they will be, encouraged. you know, encouraged or allowed to, you know, mm-hmm. because certainly, certainly the intent is there and the investments there. You know, if you look at Asian countries in general, there's a lot of, of uh, investment in um, promoting entrepreneurship, I think. So when you say they may not be encouraged, where would the discouragement come from? Uh, At a micro level, you know, I mean, all these things may look great at a macro level, but, you know, um, who's allowed to succeed at at a micro level or who is lucky enough is a better word. Who's lucky enough to succeed at a micro level? I think it's true everywhere. And that's true. Here, everybody wants to not only be an entrepreneur, but there are a lot of places to look for money and for training and for uh, mutual support, etc. Is that what you mean? Well, I think when you talk about that in America, a lot of it's more privately based or more, mm-hmm. you know, looking for money and some of those things. Whereas I think that there's a much more um, national urgency to promote that kind of behavior. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. So when you look at all this, how bullish are you about China's future? Is this, is this, uh, you know, we know that there's been a slight downturn, but is there uh, growth going to continue? Are things bullish or are the challenges that they've got going to increase in a way that, um, that could that could challenge all this. I think both, Susan. 
<laughs> Don't you think both? I mean, you know, when you really look at it, the fact that they've, um, you know, helped move 400 million people out of poverty, that they've done what they've done since um, uh, Deng Xiaoping's time. And, you know, it's just remarkable. Um, and, you know, the whole movement of that emergence of a middle class is what funds, you know, growth and education and free thinking and all the things we were talking about earlier. Um, so, you know, I think the opportunities it is there and, you know, the markets are getting bigger. The local markets are getting bigger. And even though the demographics have turned, there's still a lot of, of growth that's going to happen in these countries. So what could, what could get in the way of that? What are the big challenges that could uh, derail that movement? Well, you know, what, I don't really know. I, well, but I think one of them we've talked about is, um, you know, the whole flow of information is there comes a point where, uh, you know, the uh, sort of tribal information, um, it's too conflicting with a, a single, you know, dictatorship. Uh, so, so I think just, that's a question. So, you know, it's like, okay, you know, so you have 800 million users, you have a great firewall, and then you have all this information that people are disseminating that's impossible to control. And by the way, that information is increasing geometrically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So how do you control it mm -hmm. in the future? And, and how do you keep all those special interest groups happy and, and feeling good about their prosperity and their lifestyle and how things are changing. Well, and meanwhile, so, if, yeah, if you're, if you're pumping out a lot of college graduates who now can't get jobs um, because the economy has shifted, that, that, that creates the kind of uh, unrest that could be, could be a challenge, I would imagine. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I, I, it's the, you know, I don't think it's, it's purely that educational system. I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, how the, you know, the, the pricing is, is managed, you know, and then the costs are, are managed that makes it difficult for them to be successful. Mm-hmm. So you've had a lot of experience in Hong Kong. I mean, you've lived there, you've taught there, you've done business there. What's happening between Hong Kong and China? A lot of people in this part of the world, in the Western part of the world, don't really um, have an understanding of what is all this pro-democracy stuff all about, and should Hong Kongers be worried that their world is really shifting and that it's not the Hong Kong it used to be, and is that a problem? That's a very sensitive question, and... <laughs> um, uh, you know, probably, again, I'm not the best one to answer about it. But again, you know, we talked about earlier, I'm going to go back to my, the first thing I said to you about the dog that caught the car is that, you know, every place I live doesn't understand how to deal with the information that its citizens now have, be it true or untrue. Mm -hmm. Okay, so these, you know, the Hong Kong, if you look at the, um, a lot of sort of basic demographic statistics in terms of education levels, in terms of 
of you know health in terms of of experience global experience all those kind of things it's they're very different than than most cities in the mainland and you know i don't think that's that much different than what we'd have in uh you know in the united states the people in alabama are very different from people in manhattan but it's kind of that same thing but how what kind of, you know, it's very difficult, I think, for the Chinese people, uh, the Chinese government in Beijing to really understand, you know, Hong Kong people. Because of their long-standing sort of social evolution uh, through, you know, their, their time as a colony for Great Britain. For, mm-hmm. You know, so that's mm-hmm. a very difficult thing for them to, to do, uh, is to understand that. But um, these people um, are well-educated, smart, aggressive in Hong Kong. And I think they believe that they should be entitled um, to self-determination in terms of how they elect their government, how they rule themselves. And, you know. How likely um, do you think that's going to be? Well, you know, the sad thing is, is that China is never going to give in to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just isn't going to happen. But they can't because, you know, Taiwan's right across the strait, and then you have other cities and the West and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, um, these people here, uh, I don't think that they're going to give in either. So, you know, the question is, is how do you reach some kind of um, daytime how do you reach some well let's let's hope it would be like a working collaboration that recognizes both of them because you know I think one of the things that a lot of people don't understand is that uh, you know the there were flight there was flights of money out of Hong Kong in 1997. Mm-hmm. You know, because people thought the whole place was going to be immediately, it was going to be sort of like barbed wired in or whatever. Well, it didn't happen. Yeah, you're referring to the turnover, the handover. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, it didn't happen. But, you know, the question is how that's going to evolve over time, you know. And I don't know. I really don't know. But these people are not giving up on that. So even though China is ultimately going to win, it's in everybody's best interest if they find a way to, you know, to make that work together. And and the other thing about that is that people don't understand how much money China pumps through Hong Kong, too. So there's a lot of, you know, there's some positive things there, too. Yeah. Tell me about that. When, when, When you say that, what does that mean? What are you referring to? When you say they pump their money through there. Well, there's good, you know, I don't want to get too much into that. But, mm-hmm. you know, the fact of the matter is that China does control the flow of money out of the mainland. And a lot of it funnels through Hong Kong. Yeah, okay. Just, for various purposes. Yeah. So I, I've been intrigued by the fact that the that Alibaba purchased the South China Morning Post, um, What I guess, last year. And now has newly installed a Chinese American who's really a tech guru, not a journalist, to head the, the head the newspaper with the stated intention of having 
um, the South China Morning Post become both a a real uh, set the standard of how technology can be used journalistically, and also to become uh, the independent of Beijing voice for information to the rest of the world about what's happening in Greater China. Um, I understand there's some real skepticism about that, about whether it can, in fact, not only succeed in this technological effort, which is still being struggled with by the New York Times and Washington Post and others who are engaged in this sort of same effort, but also whether it can be truly independent of mainland China. Do you have any thoughts about that just as a as an observer, as somebody who probably has read the SCMP with some regularity or maybe not? Well, you know, again, that goes back to what I talked about in the very kind of first idea here is, you know, every place I live, every place I spend a lot of time is struggling with trying to understand, um, you know, how to how inter- information is going to be distributed and received now. And it really scares me. You know, when I'm back in the States, how many people um, get their their news from some like, you know, uh, very partisan kind of of funded website. And some of the stuff that I, I heard when I was back in the States, just amazing. You know, I I heard I had someone who I'd known for a long time try to convince me that uh uh, one sent me a link that said that, you know, Sandy Hook was all a fabrication of the government. Oh, my gosh. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, you get that. You get Trump saying, you know, there were two million people there. And New York Times says there's 900,000 people there. Oh, at, you know, the, you have all, at the inauguration. I have all yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. So you have all that stuff going on, too. And it's just it's even more so. Um, in China. So that would argue that there's a, a real need if we if if uh, if if we think it's of interest for people in the West to know more about what's going on in Greater China. Are you saying that that may be difficult because the journalists in that because uh, the SCMP won't be able to maintain its independence, or are we saying it's because they won't be able to even get the information? Well, the, the, the what I've always heard was that, you know, Jack Ma says that uh, he thinks that the South China Morning Post can do a better job of being more, um, you know, more fair in reporting their news. But mm-hmm. uh, I'd understood was they always kind of were the voice of change, you know, for the region. So I'm not certain exactly what that means. But... Um, I'm, I do think they can do a very good job with really, and I hope they do, of really sort of reestablishing the role of the news organization um, in a digital economy. Because, you know, even, so going back, we have the fake news is, uh, again, and the fake news organizations again. Um, and then you also have the, their dampening effect on the credible news organizations mm-hmm. because, you know, the cost of making things up is a lot cheaper than the cost of reporting. So the credible news organizations have to find ways to cut their costs 
or else they'll go out of business. Yeah, it's a tricky thing. That's for sure. I'm, I'm fascinated by, um, the reason I think it's so exciting if they are able to pull this off is that, I mean, one of the reasons for this podcast series is that I feel so many people that I know in the West are just not informed about what's happening in Asia. Some of them have an appetite and a curiosity about it, but, um, they're the only place they can turn for information are Western sources who aren't necessarily, uh, you know, it's a Western source. And it's said from a Western viewpoint, I think, you know, from the conversations I was facilitating in, in, uh, gatherings of business leaders in China and in Hong Kong and elsewhere that we'd always precede the conversation with articles that we'd have people read. And every time I'd have people say, well, this is interesting, but it's been written by Westerners. This is this is a Western picture about whatever it was, innovation in Asia, something else. And I realized that's true. I didn't find those definitive articles in the South China Morning Post. So I'm hoping they can do that just because the world needs it. Um, at least if we're going to become more informed about each other in a way that isn't just, as you said, fake news. It's a really important time, I think, for journalism in general. Uh, as you say, we haven't caught up to the we haven't caught up to the technology. No, and, and it is a really important time. Um, I was thinking about that the other day. You know, I was thinking about um, uh, Woodward and Bernstein, and you know, and all the president's men, and all that kind of thing, and the role that. Um, journalism played yeah you know in our society at the time that you and i were you know uh in our 20s you know i mean it was really something that was to be admired and respected and promoted um and that's that's ancient history now isn't it unfortunately yeah, yeah you almost feel nostalgic about it it all seems so you know, other world almost. I, there was a marvelous film um, that didn't get wide circulation. I think it was called Page One, and it was a real a documentary about the New York Times trying to grapple with what was happening in the digital world and how they were going to get there. And one of the most ironic things to me was that it took place in the new, then new New York Times building, which they had had to sell and then rent back space in so that they could you know, survive economically. Survive. Yeah. It's, it's, it, this is uh, an important time, and you're right. Um, we got all the technology to be informed all over the place, and, and yet it's being used in ways that are not necessarily helpful. So um, more to come. But I think you used the word collaboration earlier, and I, I, I think that's fascinating because to my observation from having been lucky enough to be in a number of parts of the world, especially Asia, as well as the West, makes me think this should be the next century of collaboration, but that's the way things have to be done. You said it about Hong Kong and mainland China. Um, you referred to it in terms of how companies do business all over the world, um, and the, yet the rise of nationalism, populism in a lot of places seems to argue against that. So this is this is going to be interesting, and I don't think we can just watch it. I think we have to figure out how to get active in it. What's your thought? Well, it's interesting. I I left. I moved from the United States 
in, in uh, 1995. I moved to Sydney and then went to Tokyo and then uh, here. Um, and the change is so different, you know, and that's, it's a long time, you know, as a percentage of a human lifespan for sure. But, you know, in, when you talk about how the world progresses, it's not very long at all. So I think about going back to 1995 when I was in Sydney, you know, we had email, but we had to use those kind of dial up things <laughs> and we didn't really have an internet, you know, to speak. Of. Okay. So, you know, that really wasn't that long ago in terms of the change. And back then, you know, when I was in the business world, you know, we'd have people from Europe and North America come and, you know, and visit our, uh, uh, our divisions in India or China or Japan or Australia or wherever. And the whole ability to function and to make a business happen across those borders was culturally very, very different, very, very difficult. You know, and then part of the role that someone like me had to play was trying to facilitate those interactions. But again, 1995, that generation is um, moved on. And the people that have replaced them have sort of grown up in a more globalized world. And they're much um, more adept at collaborating across different cultures. And I think that's globally. That's from Asia back to the United States and the United States to Asia. And you can include Europe in that as well. So that's the good thing is that now, as I mentioned, you know, a millennial that's worked for a big company has an experience probably of working in a global project through Skype, just like we're having this interview right now. So that's the good thing if, you know, nationalism and protectionism don't get in the way of it. Yeah, I think that's our big challenge globally. Um, we can't go backwards now. In fact, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll more to come. TBD. Well, well, we can't go back. Well, we can't go backwards. I mean, it's not, not like the tide's going to go out again. But meanwhile, you know, we can have some backward steps. But. You know, I think the trains left the station on globalization. Mm -hmm. Well, one would hope so. Um, yeah. I think it's early to say what effect this is going to have in the United States. But my sense is that the very people you were describing, the millennials who who do have a global view, um, uh, will realize that they they are uh, potentially the people who have to carry this idea to the place that it needs to get in order for us all to thrive in it. We'll see. Anyway, is there anything we'll is there anything I haven't asked you that you think is relevant here about this whole how Asia and the West are interacting? I know you you still maintain a, you have a place in Thailand, right? As well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're all over the place, Ernie. So. Yeah. Well, one thing that just brought you know I can talk about this stuff for a long time with you, Susan. But one of the things that what you were just talking about in terms of the shift and the change. Mm -hmm. um, is that, you know, there's a big demographic swing 
going on there too that you know it's already might as well be history because it's so predictable in terms of what we know and you know, one of the things that when I work with my uh, my master students who are you know interested in developing their own brands their own businesses you know I tell them it's like you have to understand how to communicate with the people who make decisions to fund your activity and you know in 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 China, one of, the, one of the things we do is we go back and we say, you know, this is a very hierarchical, very male-dominated society. And a lot of times, you know, the guy that uh, is in charge of the place is going to be uh, between 60 and 75 and probably spent most of his formative years in the um, Cultural Revolution. <laughs> it's true. So it is true. And you know that because you've been in the room with those guys. Mm -hmm. But it's like, listen... You know, your ideas may be the best ideas in the world and completely defensible, but they've also got to be communicated into this demography. And, you know, how's Donald Trump now, too? Okay, so, you know, you have that kind of, of, of thing starting to manifest itself as well. Mm -hmm. Well, so, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. go ahead. Well, I just, you know, I think that people don't really understand um, one of the differences that, again, it's kind of moving backwards in the questions, but people don't understand, um, you know, the American, even, even if it may not happen, but, you know, the fundamental American approach to diversity in the workplace and uh, equal opportunity for everybody and all those kind of things. Um, in most Asian countries, you know, those are still uh, very hierarchical, very age-dominated, and mostly male. Yeah, so, it's, it's interesting. It really does come down ultimately to something very, very, um, very almost primal, and that is knowing how to have a conversation with people who are different from you. And... Uh, recognizing the importance of being able to communicate uh, to people who aren't necessarily in the next cubicle with whom you just text message. You know, it's, it's, uh, I'm fascinated by that. I, I when I, I spoke at a TEDx in Hong Kong, now it was several years ago about conversation. And I had people come up to me afterwards and say, you know, we don't talk in my family. We don't have dinner and talk around the table, and I don't really know how to talk when I get a job. Are you supposed to go talk to the president of the company? You know, it's like really very basic stuff. Um, so, well, you know, I mean, one of the things that's uh, amazing, I know, even in the states, that uh, you know, people complain about the fact that you know the children want to sit at the table and use their phones and play games and message and all that, but it's nowhere near as extensive as it is all across Asia. Yeah, Have you talked about that with other people? Yes, and everybody says that, that it's just, it, 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 nobody's talking to each other. They're talking to somebody yeah. else. Yeah. Right, they're, you know, a husband and wife are sitting at a, a, a dinner table and they're each immersed in their phone. Um, and it's the rule rather than the exception. Yeah, so what, what hath uh, Steve Jobs wrought? <laughs> Right. Well, whatever we do with it. 
I think this was great, Ernie. Uh, as usual, fascinating conversation with you, and I really appreciate your participating in this Asia and the West podcast, and um, look forward to talking with you again. I hope so. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. If this is the first time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast, that's C-O-N-V 360 Podcast, and my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening.